Sometimes, when small children get a present, or they discover something that we already knew for a long time, but they didn't, they can show great joy, exhilaration, and excitement. They are surprised and delighted with their present and their discovery. And they're jumping around and showing you all the time what it is that they got or found. And if we are watching the scene, they often bring great joy and delight to us. But when they get older, they get a little bit more like us adults. A little bit blasé, maybe. Not showing this great joy and that delight anymore. And when we think of the gift of the gospel, it can become a little bit like that. We still appreciate it, of course. But the sparkle of surprise and of astonishment is gone. And when it really gets bad, it becomes, if not boring, at least a routine. It will give us comfort to go, but it is also a little bit like a treadmill. We go to church, for example, for that is what you do on a Sunday, and it is good, and it brings rest. But the experience of great surprise, of anticipation, and of joy has faded away. Now, do you wish, as the Apostle Paul calls it in Romans 12, verse 11, to keep your spiritual fervor? Or do you want to share in the exhilaration that you could hear in the words of the prophet Isaiah in his invitation to the thirsty? And do you still want to be surprised by the grace and the love of God that John has mentioned in chapter 3, verse 16, just prior to our text? Well, if that is the case, let us reflect on the story in, on this story in the Gospel of John. And I would like to summarize for you the message of God's word from John 4 this evening as follows. Learn from the surprising story of the Samaritan woman. Be surprised by the story of this Samaritan woman. And we note three things. The first one is a surprising message, meeting. Secondly, a surprising message. And lastly, a surprising outcome. So let yourselves be surprised then by the story of this Samaritan woman. And there is in the first place a surprising meeting. In the beginning of this chapter 4, we are being told that the Lord Jesus is making more disciples than John the Baptist and that he leaves Judea, Jerusalem, to go to Galilee, up north. Was it to avoid competition with John? No, because the text also states that he did so because Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard. And the Lord Jesus, gaining even more disciples than John the Baptist, would have resulted in a confrontation with the leaders in Jerusalem. 
And the Lord Jesus at this stage in this early stage in his ministry wants to avoid that confrontation. The conflict will come, but at the time of the Lord's choosing. And so he goes north. And one route, although by no means the only one, from Jerusalem to Galilee leads through Samaria. Now, some of the Orthodox Jews, as also the historian Josephus tells us, avoided this area. They would go east across, down to Jericho, then across the Jordan, and then back up the other side. The valley itself was an impenetrable thicket, which was dangerous because of robbers and lions. So they would go up on the other side and then travel north on a very well-known trade route, the King's Highway. And then when they had traveled some time north, they would go back west into Galilee. Why? Well, because the relations with the Samaritans were very bad. After the northern kingdom fell in 721 before Christ to Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria, in the time of Isaiah and Micah, and King Hezekiah, the people there were deported. Tiglapileser decided it was better to uproot them, take them away from their own area, their own networks, less risk of an uprising. And new people were introduced there, and they intermingled with the Jewish people that were left behind. And also their religion became an amalgamation. We'll come back to that later. And the area was known as Samaria, the hill country north of Jerusalem, after the capital built by Omri. And the people were known as Samaritans, and some of them are still there today. (coughs) Now, the relations had always been bad, because nearly 300 years later, at the time just after the exile, the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, the Samaritan leaders, like Tobias and Sanballat, tried to stop the rebuilding of the temple. The Jews saw them as half-breeds, descendants of occupiers who had hindered religion and had some bastardized form of worship. They regarded them as ignorant, superstitious, mongrels outside of God's favor and consideration, and they were considered unclean. That's why you get, in verse 9, John's explanatory footnote. Buying dry food from them was just about okay, but sharing dishes and so on certainly not. And socially and PC-wise, religiously correct-wise, it was a no-go area. But, and that for some was probably the first surprise, the Lord Jesus ignores this strict convention of the most pious religious leaders. And he decides to take this route through Samaria. And they had two in verse 4, is not a geographical imperative, because there were many other roads. It was a missionary imperative. It was an integral part of his service. And on this route he comes to Sichar. Now today there is no place of this name, but it's thought to be south of Samaria itself. It was the land allotted to Joseph, Ephraim, the leading tribe of the northern kingdom. And the village was apparently close to Joseph's, Jacob's well. The well which still is there within the complex of a ministry close to what is today Nablus. 
Jacob's well is not mentioned in the Old Testament, and there were also a lot of other wells around, but they were probably claimed by the local population. So it is quite possible, if not likely, that Jacob did indeed his own well. And that was quite an artifact. They could be deep, up to feet 40 meters. And it was a spring with flowing water at the bottom. And then our text tells us, at the sixth hour, that's around noon, Jesus is tired. The Apostle John is always very carefully to both stress the humanity and the divinity of our Lord. And he sits down at that well. And the disciples go for food to the village a little while away. And then there appears a woman, alone. (coughs) Now, so far, the story is pretty straightforward, not much unusual, but her appearance is somewhat alone and in the middle of the day. Because normally the women would go together and have a good blather about the goings-on in the village, no doubt. And they would come either at the beginning or at the end of the day, not in the heat of mid. So this was either an emergency or avoiding the usual social contact. And the latter seems likely based on what we later learn. And then our text continues in verse 7. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Just a few words. And there is nothing strange for us, maybe, but for the Jews and the contemporary readers, it most certainly was a big second and third surprise. Because some of the more strict rabbis believed that talking to a woman was a sinful waste of time. Now, that teaching and consulting women is a waste of time is, of course, a view that is still widely held in the Middle East today. Think about the girl from Pakistan, Malala, and the difficulties she had in getting an education. But some of the rabbis carried it even a step further. Wasting time was a sin. It should be used for studying the Torah or some similar activity, and so talking to a woman was a sin. This, in addition to the talk and the gossip, it could give rise to And the rabbis were no exception. The Greek philosophers, the rulers of the cities in Greece at the time, were also very uneasy about being spoken to by women not their own in a public forum. But it is worthwhile noting that the Lord Jesus never held with these conventions. He always freely conversed with women and taught them. Most notable, of course, in the story of Martha and Mary in Luke 10, where the Lord Jesus comes and visits them, and Martha is busy in the kitchen, and Mary is sitting at his feet listening to his teaching. And when Martha comes and complains that Mary should come and help her in the kitchen, the Lord Jesus tells her, No, Mary has chosen the better part. And so the second surprise for that traditional and politically correct society is that Jesus talks to a woman. The third, even bigger surprise is that he does so to a Samaritan woman and asks her for a drink, presumably from the water jar that she was carrying. 
Because the Samaritans, the, the rabbis did not much of the Samaritans in general, but even less of their women. They were forever menstruating and perpetually unclean, was the view sometimes held. And so were all the things they were carrying and used, including the water jar. And John explains that in the note, for his gospel was of course written outside Palestine and much later. And he explains the Jews did not use things together with the Samaritans or more broadly socialize with them. And that is why the woman asks, and you can hear the surprise in her question in verse 9, how is it that you, a Jew, asks for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? And the same surprise you see in the reaction of the apostles in verse 27. They are so surprised, maybe even embarrassed even, that they don't even dare to ask him what he is doing with that one. But the Lord Jesus then proceeds with answering her. And we will come back to that answer in a minute. But it becomes very clear, very quickly, that the woman doesn't understand. Well, some would have said, that is what you get when you try to converse with a woman. Pearls for the swine, speak to them and you get nonsensical answers, waste of time. And indeed, the woman understands the Lord Jesus' comments about living water entirely in the horizontal framework. And deeper and spiritual thoughts pass her by. And not once, but twice. In verse 11, she says, You cannot give me water, for you have no bucket. And again in verse 15, Well, give me then that water. Then I don't have to come to this well anymore. That would be really practical and convenient. But now the fourth surprise is that Jesus doesn't give up on her. He doesn't say, no point, doesn't understand, thick as a plank, unwilling, sarcastic maybe even, unspiritual, materialistic. Know what he does? This is he changes his tack. In view of the lack of understanding, even after verse 14, where clearly the Lord is not talking about normal water, the Lord takes another, a new approach. To shake her up by showing that he is no ordinary man, and by showing her what her real problem is. And he says to her in verse 16, go and call your husband. And then we come to the fifth surprise. Because she was not only a Samaritan and a woman with whom he was ready to talk and socialize, she was also a woman of doubtful repute. Her showing up alone at this time of the day was maybe already a vague indication that something was amiss. That she was a social outcast and not in very good standing in the community. But the Lord already knew exactly what the situation was. She was probably a promiscuous woman at the periphery of even Samaritan society. And yet he engaged with her. And so in the first place we see the Lord Jesus after his meeting in chapter 3 with the upper class, well-educated, pious and learned member of Israel's leading class, 
both in secular and in religious terms, a pillar of Jewish society, Nicodemus. We see the Lord Jesus in a most surprising meeting, a meeting in Samaria with a woman, a woman who doesn't get it, a woman of bad repute, and engaging with a woman probably living a sad and sinful life of despair at the fringe of her own community, a community that itself was already despised. How much worse, some would say, or how much more surprising, or maybe even how much more encouraging can it But then the story continues. Because if we want to let us be surprised by the story of the Samaritan woman, we then see in the second place the surprising message. We go back to verse 10. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, what kind of an answer is that? It's not really an answer to the question, is it? And what does he mean by the gift of God and living water? Well, the first, and again surprising thing, is that Jesus focuses his, her attention and our attention on him. He leaves the old dispute about Samaritans not socializing with the Jews and the centuries-old antagonism and the mutual complaints and the grievances that I'm sure were piled high on both sides. He leaves it all aside. It is not that he doesn't believe in right and wrong. We'll come back to that in verse 22. And that he is sort of a post-modernist avant la lettre. But this is not what the focus should be on. The focus should be on the gift of God. Now you can understand that either to be the Torah, the Old Testament, the books, the prophecies pointing to the Messiah, to him. And it is quite likely that that's meant also in light of the fact that the expectation in the Old Testament, the Torah, of a Messiah later comes back into the conversation in verse 25 and 26. Or it could be a direct reference to the Lord himself in the context of this gospel. But John has just earlier in chapter 3 identified Jesus as the Son of God given to this world. In a way, it doesn't really matter which explanation you prefer because both lead to the same conclusion. If you only knew me, if only you knew who is speaking to you. And that is often a relevant question for us as well, isn't it? We can have all sorts of disputes and different views on things and disagreements. But are we in the midst of all the debate still focused on him, on Jesus? And do we keep him center stage and firmly in our mind? For he is the one who can give, continues our text, living water. If only you knew me, you would not focus on this dispute between the Jews and the Samaritans, but ask me for living water. It is the water that will never leave you thirsty, and it is the water that will become in you a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. 
Now what kind of water is this? What does this surprising answer mean? And what is the surprise if we understand the answer? Later in John there is the story of the feeding of the 5,000. But the people do not believe him and they ask for a sign. You can read it in chapter 6 verse 30 where it says, So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? And the Lord Jesus gives them an answer in verse 35. He says, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then he repeats that again in verse 40. It is here from the Jews a similar question and a similar lack of understanding. And the answer is, I am the bread and water. If you believe in me, you will have eternal life. And he repeats that again. We won't go over that in chapter 7. Now, the imagery of water in the climate of Israel was a very powerful one. Living water, flowing water, water that doesn't run out, water that is fresh, not stagnant and diseased or stinky. It was critical for life. So what Jesus is saying, I will always be sufficient. You will spiritually not ever be thirsty. I am the way to peace with the Father, to eternal life. And through the Holy Spirit, he will always renew our faith and so keep open the way to God. If you believe in me, I will give you the Holy Spirit and so I will keep you safe into eternity. That is also the content of the Lord's Prayer in John 17. And that is the surprising offer that Jesus makes to this Samaritan woman and to us. But she still did not understand. She still is focused, as so often we are, on the horizontal plane, on the here and now, and on what it is that we see before us. And first her reaction was, you cannot give me any water because you have no bucket. And now it is, if you have this water that never lets you first, well, give it to me, so I don't have to come at the middle of the day to this well. But as we saw, the Lord Jesus does not give up. And he changes his approach. Because now she needs to be shaken up and realize that she can look at him not only in the horizontal plane, but that she needs to understand that the Lord Jesus is no ordinary man. And the Lord Jesus also does now expose her real problem. Because the discussion now goes to her sinful lifestyle and the misery that it brought with it. And in doing so, he wants to address her real need, not water from Jacob's well, but repentance of sin and return to God. And he does so by telling her in verse 16, go and get your husband. And from the rather curt answer that she gives, I don't have one, it is clear that she doesn't want to go there. The topic is not attractive. It is off limits. It's painful, maybe upsetting. And the Lord is very gentle in his answer. 
but he is also precise and to point. You can read it in the verses 17 and 18. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So he clearly indicates that he already knew the thing you said is true. But the implication is also that he knew that she was really misleading in her answer. And it exposes her problem. And the Samaritan woman now understands that Jesus is no ordinary man and that he is not just talking about the water from the well before them. And she acknowledges, Sir, you are a prophet. But then, as may be, we also are in the habit of doing, there is yet another diverting tactic. Another maneuver to draw attention away from herself and her problem. And it's often used by people. You want to speak to them about the church and their faith and the Lord calling them and so on. And they bring up some general theological topic. Evil in the world, division between churches, some highbrow point about predestination. Sectarianism is very popular, government want to study it and so on. Anything to lead the conversation away from Jesus and his appeal to them personally. And so it is here. The Samaritans had mixed Old Testament Jewish beliefs with other ideas, and somehow they had come to believe that only the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, were God's word. And the version had also some minor changes compared with the Hebrew Bible. And that was the reason that the Jews, upon their return from the exile, did not recognize them as true Old Testament believers and had excluded them from the temple, its service, and its rebuilding. And that, of course, had led to resentment on the part of the Samaritans and opposition at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. We mentioned it earlier. And in turn, the Jews, of course, had not forgotten that. Now, in Deuteronomy 12, verses 4 to 7, Moses indicated that the Lord would show the Israelites where to worship him and where to build the temple. And later, under David and Solomon, it becomes clear that the Lord had selected Jerusalem, which since then always had been the center of their worship, the place where the tribes of Israel went to meet the Lord. However, the Samaritans did not recognize these later, recognize these later books and somehow had concluded from Deuteronomy 11 verse 29 and a couple of other verses that Mount Gerizim, the mount together with Mount Ebal of the curses and the blessings, was the place that God had selected. And in 400 before Christ, they built their own temple there, not having been allowed to participate in the Jerusalem temple which then in turn was destroyed by the Jewish Hasmonean king John Hyrcanus about 110 before Christ, further adding, of course, to dual aggravation. So as theological disputes go, this was really an important difference and that had also caused a lot of actual grief. And in addition, the Samaritans believe, based on Deuteronomy 18, where where a prophet like Moses is foretold, 
that a kind of the Messiah would come, but for them he appears not to have to be the kingly, the political figure that the Jews expected, but more a teacher who would explain everything. And you see her make a reference to that while using the word Messiah in verse 25. And this, after the Lord had pointed at her lifestyle, she now brings into the discussion. You are indeed a prophet, so you can explain everything. What then about this dispute between the Jews and the Samaritans about the place of worship? Now the question, of course, had nothing to do with either her lifestyle or the misery that it brought with it, which had been exposed by the Lord Jesus, nor with the appeal to believe in him and his offer of living water to her, which she had made earlier. She avoids talking about her needs and about the solution that the Lord's offer offers. Instead, she diverts attention from the Lord's appeal to some theological dispute. And the next surprise is that the Lord doesn't let her. He doesn't give up pursuing what is the really important issue, and that is will she turn to him. He doesn't brush her question aside, why discuss this with a stupid woman, or why bother with this diverting tactic. And he doesn't take a postmodern, we'll see it all broad and you can have it your way. In fact, he comes down pretty clearly on the side of the Jews in verse 22, when he tells her, you Samaritans are misguided, and indeed the worship, the Old Testament pointing at the Messiah, of the Jews is the Quran leading to salvation. But surprisingly, he leads us through this theological dispute to the point that is really relevant. And that is not worship on which mountain, with which rituals, with what priestly caste, and under whose jurisdiction. Questions they all thought were very important. But it is the question, do you, woman, believe the Messiah has come? And if so, you must now believe in spirit and the truth. He does not start some abstract discourse, but with a direct appeal to her. Take it from me, verse 21, woman. Take it from me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. And he then continues to stress that the times in which these disputes were relevant are over. Twice he says, the hour has come now. In John's Gospel, the hour often refers to Jesus' suffering, resurrection, and exaltation. In other words, to the completion of the Lord Jesus' work on earth. He is not so explicit here, I think, but the implication is the same. What he refers to is the tearing of the curtain in the temple, which symbolized the end of the Old Testament temple worship at the time of his death. And because of me, you now must worship in spirit and in truth. Earlier, the Lord Jesus had said, I am here to give you, give you living water. I will give you to sustain you in your faith, the Holy Spirit. And later in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, just before his ascension, he says it again. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. 
And then we see in Acts 8 the Apostle Philip going there. It will be a spring of living water in you. Never again will there be spiritual hunger or thirst. And a feeling of unrest and a longing for fulfilling. The fulfilling that so many people pursue in all kinds of ways, sometimes pretty bizarre, is what the Lord offers. And now you need to worship and to worship in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit. That is the motivation. The expression is similar to God is light and God is love. That is his being. He's not a tree, stone, a mountain, money, buildings or things. He fulfills our longing and gives us rest and sustains us in our relationship with him through his Holy Spirit. And on that basis, with our being finding rest in him, we need to worship him from the heart, in spirit, with the whole person, not in and through things. In Jesus, the truth about God is finally and ultimately revealed. I am, said the Lord in John 14, to Thomas, the truth and the way to God. To worship in truth is to worship in Christ. And so to worship in truth means to worship recognizing Christ, understanding what he did. Open the way to God, to eternal life, to life as it was intended to be at creation. But, says our text, it must also be done this way. can't be done another way. Pomp, circumstances, rituals, beautiful buildings, or age-old traditions or fiercely argued, argued liturgies, it doesn't matter if you personally are not worshipping the Lord Jesus from your heart. And the Lord Jesus tells her, such God seeks. He's not passive, but he is proactive. He is on the lookout for such. You may be Samaritan, a woman, and one of doubtful repute at that. But if you are willing to worship in spirit and in truth with your whole heart through the truth brought by Jesus, then God is on the lookout for you. It is you he seeks. And like Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman and kept talking to her, notwithstanding all her lack of understanding and diverting tactics. So he is in chapter 4, John chapter 4, seeking you and me. And that is the surprising message of this story. But then, if you are willing to let you be surprised, yourselves be surprised by the story of the Samaritan woman, there is, in the third and last place, a surprising outcome. Because in response to, the, to Jesus' persistent seeking of this woman, she finally, hesitantly, slowly responds. In verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Earlier she had recognized him as a prophet. Now she starts contemplating the possibility that Jesus is the prophet. And she uses the Jewish name of Messiah and the Samaritan idea of who this person might be and what he was expected to do. 
I know that such a person is coming, she says. And the unspoken question to follow is, and are you him? And in the closing words of the dialogue with this woman, the Lord leaves no doubt at all. When he answered this implied question, and he uses the Old Testament self-designation of the covenant God of Yahweh, I am the one who is speaking to you. I am he. It's the first time, actually, in the Gospel of John that Jesus announces himself as the Messiah. And he will wait a long time before doing it in Israel. Probably because of the political loading that this word had for the Jews and the likely antagonism of the Jewish leaders. That confrontation still had to wait. But here he states it very clearly for the Samaritan woman and for us. Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior. And it must have been a great surprise for the woman, the Messiah, talking to her. The one from God, so long expected, he had engaged with her. The one many were looking for, he had appealed to her. And you can still hear her surprise in the message to her fellow villagers. Because the next surprise is that she becomes a most unlikely evangelist. She leaves for town, forgets her water jar, and full of the news, she reports how extraordinary a person Jesus is. He told me everything about me. That is how she herself had come to understand that he was special. And then she asks, he cannot be the Christ, can he? Some have thought that maybe she still doubted he was the Messiah, and then presumably looking for further input from her fellow man. But I think that's unlikely. If she was in doubt, she would not have posed the question, nor looked for assurance from people who had not even spoken to him. Now, the surprise expressed is more likely, the man who told me all is the prophet, the Messiah. But how is it possible that he talked to me? She is astonished, stunned, overwhelmed. How could it be the Messiah talking to her, the woman who had done all these things in her life. But he was. And through the story, he is today to you and me, in whatever situation we are. And that is the great surprise for us today. The woman most likely was surprised. The disciples certainly were. That's what the text says, verse 47. 37, they did not understand how Jesus could talk to a Samaritan woman and what he could possibly wish to say to her. And like the woman, they're still looking at the things in the horizontal dimension. They had gone to the village to buy food and now they offer it to him. And when he refuses, they wonder whether somebody else had brought him something in the meantime. But Jesus' thoughts are still with what had happened and was happening. He had come to this world to do the work of the Father, to bring his children through his own obedience. And when he had been tempted by food, with food by the devil, he had pointed at this priority in Matthew 4, verse 4, by citing a text in Deuteronomy 8, a section about not forgetting obedience to God when living in that wealthy promised land. Man shall not eat by bread alone. 
And maybe he was thinking about that when he told his disciples, I have food to eat that you do not know about. God's word. God's purpose with sending Jesus had to be done. That was more important than food. And he goes on, he says, the harvest needed to be brought in. Well, the harvest were four months away, we're told in the text. And it says the fields are white for harvest. That's what Jesus says to his disciples. Well, there was no harvest in Israel, which is white when it ripened. And as I said, it wasn't even clear that it was the time of the harvest. So Jesus was probably not pointing at an actual harvest when he said, the harvest is white for harvesting. Instead, he may have been pointing at the white garments of the crowd that was coming towards him from the village. And he is urging and encouraging his disciples to pay attention to that harvest. There is no need and no reason to wait. Not for an opportune moment, not for their own harvest. Not after this or that event. Now, he says. And the Samaritans marching in their direction. It certainly must have surprised the disciples. And does it you? But then the Lord had already said in Isaiah chapter 55, which we read in verse 11, So like the rain, my word shall shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, and it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And then the Lord Jesus combines these with his words. He accepts the invitation of these Samaritans. And both the invitation and the acceptance were probably big surprises. And then the harvest, we read, comes in. Verse 41. And many more believed because of his word. And then they say to the woman, We no longer believe because of what you said, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And so here they are, the Samaritans from Sichar. And what a surprise. It is them telling and witnessing to you, we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this one, this Jesus, truly is the Savior of the world, and that he came to seek us, to seek you and me. And so briefly then, and in closing, when the joy of our faith is ebbing away and the excitement over our salvation is at the low, or when the boredom of routine is lurking around the corner, then read this surprise story of the Samaritan woman. Because we saw a surprising meeting. We see the Lord Jesus bring the gospel in such a surprising manner to such surprising and surprised people. The Lord wasn't creating creating a boring congregation of similar people with the same cultural background and traditions. That is what we sometimes do. But he called a leading, learned, cultured and educated man in Nicodemus. And we read elsewhere that he was calling a powerful tax collector with dubious business practices in Zacchaeus. And here he calls an outcast woman from the the despised Samaritans. 
And he went in all cases to extraordinary lengths to call and convince them, gentle and persistent. And now, through these stories, he is meeting with you and me. And then the second place, the surprising message. Do not get bogged down in ancient and long-standing theological disputes. Do not get stuck in arguments on what mountain or town God, with all the rituals and traditions that they may have there, is to be worshipped. It is not that they are unimportant. And the Lord clearly takes position in this example of the debate between the Jews and the Samaritans. But he equally clearly says two things. First, you cannot use these disputes as diversionary tactics. We cannot hide behind debates, issues, problems, or clever theological questions to defer our coming and to postpone our answer to the Lord Jesus as he is speaking to us, as he is doing through the story of the Samaritan woman. And in the second place, when you come, it is your heart that is most important. You need to come to faith and remain in faith and worship God in spirit and in truth. The building, the liturgy, the precise theology, they're all important and they have their use. But it is your heart that matters. With our whole being, we need to truly love the Lord. So that with the Samaritan woman, we can say in wonderment and in great surprise... It can hardly be true, can it, that this message is for me. And then lastly, the surprising outcome. Because then, when we ourselves are genuinely surprised by joy, another surprising thing will happen. The word goes out and the people come in. The woman went to town and the disciples were given their mobilization warning to the time of the harvest now. Not after waiting for some other event or some other time. Isaiah had already phrased the call in the verses 1 to 2 that we read, Come, everyone who first come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And he had already announced the joy that the Lord Jesus also refers to in verse 36, in verse 12, when he says, For you shout in joy and be led forth in peace, and the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. And so our text closes with the joyful testimony of the Samaritan villagers. We know that this man is really the savior of the world. And what better surprise is there? May we all respond with the words of Horatius Boner. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Behold, I freely give the living water, thirsty one. Stoop down and drink and live. I came to Jesus and I drank 
of that life-giving stream. And my first was, my, was quenched, and my soul revived, and now I live in him. Amen.